0: Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative, and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State, Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPInfo.org. Governor Kathy Hochul's budget proposal to direct less money to New York schools and change how that aid is distributed has been met with almost universal opposition from members of both major political parties. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports.
1: Hochul wants to lower the inflation factor in what's known as the state's foundation aid formula. The formula is used to calculate how much money each of the more than 700 school districts receive each year in the state budget. Data collected in November estimated the inflation rate at 3.8 percent, but Hochul's budget would increase spending to account for inflation by just 2.4 percent. The governor also wants to end a longtime provision known as hold harmless. It guarantees that no school district will get less in state aid than the previous year. At her budget presentation, Hochul took a shot at some of the state's richer schools, saying they're holding millions of dollars in reserves and could use that to make up the difference. One would think that that could be used to reduce property taxes, but it's still being held in reserves. The proposals have angered many in the education community, including the teachers union, New York State United Teachers. They accuse Hochul of backtracking and of breaking a promise she made just two years ago to finally fulfill a 2006 court order. It said schools must receive billions more dollars a year to meet the state's constitutional requirement to fully educate its children. Melinda Person, the president of NYSET, says the changes Hochul now wants amount to a $400 million dollar cut to schools we've been celebrating the fact that the governor fully funded foundation aid for the last year and so it's really disappointing to see that we're back again having to have this conversation about insisting that we keep the promise to our schools, to fund schools. Person says the union is willing to work on restructuring the foundation aid formula, taking into account lower enrollment due to population changes. But she says when schools are still struggling to overcome the worst of the COVID pandemic and the resulting learning loss among children, now is not the time for reductions. We are not in a recession. These cuts are unnecessary. The school aid changes also face stiff opposition from the state legislature who have to approve the budget. Democratic State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins says ending the hold harmless provision would result in reductions to about half of the districts in the state. About 50 percent, about half of the school districts in the state will get less money. I think that is obviously difficult. Many of those schools are in suburban districts surrounding New York City, which are battlegrounds for key congressional races this year. The cuts have already become an issue in the race to fill the seat formerly held by George Santos, where the House Republican Congressional Committee is trying to link Hogel's cuts to Democrat Tom Swasey, who is seeking to regain that post. But lawmakers in districts that represent rural schools are also opposed to the change. A group of Republican assembly members who are in the minority party in the legislature say their schools would suffer. Assemblywoman Mary Beth Walsh is from the town of Ballston in Saratoga County. She says the change would decimate rural school districts and force them to cut programs that give the students equity with suburban schools. It's going to impact whether a, a smaller school is going to, a rural school is going to be able to offer AP, whether it's going to be able to offer talented and gifted programs. On Thursday, Hochul struck back at her critics. She says the reductions are not cuts because the change just lowers the rate of increase that the schools would have received. She says in total, schools are actually getting 825 million more dollars than they did last year. When you don't keep the historic increases in place every year. It is not a cut when you don't meet that again. And that's what they're not understanding. She says the increases of the past two years are not sustainable. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt for the New York Public News Network.
0: Last year, the New York state budget was more than a month late due to disagreements over issues like housing and bail reform. This year, it's education and public safety that are ruffling the feathers of lawmakers in the Hudson Valley. The Legislative Gazette's Jesse King with more.
2: Now... I'm going to be straight with all of you. Governor Kathy Hochul's $233 billion spending plan would increase school aid overall by roughly $825 million. But it would end a longtime tradition in the way it calculates and allocates that aid, called hold harmless, meaning schools are not guaranteed to receive at least the same amount of money that they did last year. The Democrat argued in her budget address that schools were infused with aid over the past couple years, and that many districts, especially in suburban areas, are sitting on healthy reserves. Assemblyman Chris Burdick, a Democrat from the 93rd District in Mount Kisco, refutes that. He worries the cuts will impact schools in his district that largely serve marginalized communities.
3: I don't think it's appropriate. I think, for example, the Bedford Central School District, which they would suffer over a 10 percent decrease.
2: State Senator Pete Harkim, a Democrat from the 40th District in Peekskill, particularly decried the loss of funding for Bedford schools in a statement. State Senator Rob Rollison, a Republican from the 39th District in Poughkeepsie, estimates the Poughkeepsie City School District could lose around $1.4 million in state aid, with losses also predicted in the Beacon, Garrison, and Wallkill school districts. Meantime, Burdick and Rollison both say they are happier with Hochul's housing proposal this time around. Rather than mandating growth in municipalities across the state, as the governor tried to do last year before the plan fell apart, Hochul's new proposal would incentivize communities to pledge to build more housing in order to be eligible for grants out of roughly $650 million in discretionary funding. Burdick has opposed any housing mandates that would override local communities' control over their zoning codes, so he's pleased with the change.
3: The fact that she's followed through with that and the fact that she is clearly trying to have a collaborative approach with the legislature generally is quite encouraging.
2: Meantime, Rollison says Hochul needs to be taking a tougher stance on crime and public safety. While Hochul has proposed $40.2 million to combat retail theft, including funds that would create a task force within the New York State Police, Rollison, a former Poughkeepsie mayor, is not confident that it will get results.
4: What is a task force going to do if the laws on the books are not situated and and interpreted in a way that you can hold people and, 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 you know, essentially take them off the street? And I'm not saying you're going to just lock people up and throw away the key, but it's like they know there's no consequence, so they're going to continue to do it.
2: The state's bail reform laws have drawn repeated scrutiny and multiple amendments since passing in 2019. Last year, Hochul signed a bill on the budget granting judges more discretion to hold individuals charged in certain crimes. Rollison, who served as a member of the town of Poughkeepsie Police Department for more than 20 years, says he is also concerned about the state's opioid epidemic and the rise of fentanyl, and while he is pleased by efforts to increase resources for issues like mental health, he says he doesn't see anything in Hochul's budget that will address that. Local's budget also dips into reserves to increase funding to put toward the state's migrant crisis. The governor wants to spend 2.4 billion dollars to provide services for thousands of asylum seekers who continue to be bust into New York City, including for emergency shelters in areas like Floyd Bennett Field in Brooklyn.
4: Federal governments essentially doing nothing, right? Uh, I saw the other day. I, I thought it was interesting that we're actually the state of New York is actually paying for essentially leasing Floyd Bennett Field uh, that is a federal. Uh, installation. At the very least, they should be saying, no, You listen, you can use it. Why do we have to pay them? I don't get that. It makes no sense to me.
2: New York City Mayor Eric Adams finalized a one-year lease agreement with the federal government to use Floyd Bennett Field in the fall, with Governor Hochul agreeing to reimburse the city. Hochul has said she will continue pushing President Biden for federal aid and immigration reform. Overall, Rawlison says he's ready to push back in the legislature's upcoming budget hearings, and Burdick says there's a number of things he's personally eager to work on, including better wages for home health care workers. He says it's too soon to tell how things will turn out, but he's optimistic.
3: We're gonna wanna see some increases. We're gonna wanna see some restorations, but that's normal for this process, and that's as it should be.
2: Lawmakers have until April 1st to finalize the spending plan. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Jessie King.
0: You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina This week, I sat down with Republican Assembly Minority Leader Will Barclay and asked him about his recent trip to China. This week, there was an Albany Times Union article which suggested the Brooklyn-based organization that sponsored the trip has ties to the Communist Party.
4: Well, first of all, I think the trip was, was totally appropriate. Uh, you know, it was um, we went over with three other members of mine. One was Lester Chang, who represents a large um, Asian American Chinese population in his district. He's the one that helped put this trip together. We didn't know that, that the the group that was sponsoring the trip was necessarily. I mean, would people suspect that they have some ties to the Chinese government? But you know, there's no official understanding of that. We talked to the FBI. We talked to the State Department. And we also ran it past our Legislative Ethics Commission. So, you know, we tried to dot all our I's and cross our T's and make sure that everything was on the up and up. This was not a secret junket or something like that. We went over uh, to uh, when I was in the country 12 years ago, and I was curious about how things have changed in China since that time. We're there to meet officials. And obviously, we're there to advocate for New York State and advocate for the United States and where there's... Places where we can agree upon and work together, that was sort of the purpose of the trip, to find out where those things were. So I was a little surprised that this you know, made the Times Union, the article, the front-page story, because I, I don't see it all that controversial. And you're right, state legislators, we take trips all the time, so there's nothing, you know, nothing nefarious about this trip.
0: But tell us, you know, you mentioned you were there 12 years ago. What has changed in your mind since then in China, and what specifically did you learn on this trip?
4: Yeah, interestingly, the one thing, the modernization of China, that's one thing that stuck out. I remember 12 years ago when I was there, it was a lot of construction, but a lot of, you know, a a lot of rubble, you know, they had been tearing down things. The streets weren't as as, as good repair as they are now. Uh, So I did, that was interesting. We were in um, uh, Beijing and uh, uh, a couple other cities and, they really—they're pretty modern Western cities. You would almost you wouldn't even know you're in a you know a Chinese city. So that was that was interesting. We met with a lot of government officials. Uh, actually, they raised some very tough, poignant points. Uh, some of the members I was with were talking about how China hasn't rec- recognized Hamas as a terrorist group, and so that you know we we held our foot to the fire. We asked about the fentanyl crisis and how we could you know work together to stop the flow of fentanyl coming into. The country. So, you know, we'll see where, you know, things go. Um, But I think it's important to have those relationships and have that communication. And, you know, sometimes something may come of it, something may not. But again, I, I feel like it was a legitimate trip and I was pleased to go on
0: it. And I assume that when you're talking to them, obviously you're representing New York. So when you're talking about something like fentanyl, you might be talking about the ports of entry and the places in New York where we can see these drugs being pushed through.
1: That's
4: right. Dave. And really what we want to make sure is because there was a little pushback when we asked them about that saying, they were saying, well, fentanyl is illegal in China, you know, and that kind of made me laugh. I'm, so I said, I'm sure it's illegal. That doesn't mean it's not being imported from China into the United States. So, uh, we wanted to make them at least be aware that it is a terrible problem in New York state and they ought to take it seriously and um, You know, wherever they can do to prevent that from being imported into their country. They ought to be doing that
0: Yeah, obviously China is a communist country But is there anything about the culture itself that you learn that we could learn from here in the United States?
4: <laughs> well, you know interesting in, in New York It's the fastest-growing um, ethnic population, Uh, so that's one of the reasons I think it was important to go, and that's right, some of the cultural stuff is interesting. The food is tremendous, but the history, they have a country, it's the largest country in the world, so I just think we need to be in tune to what's going on in China, and I think it's important for New Yorkers to know that, it's important for government officials to know that, and again, that was
5: really the purpose of the trip.
0: That's Republican Assembly Minority Leader, Will Barclay. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics, I'm David Gustina. After two weeks of testimony about the April 15, 2023 driveway shooting, jurors swiftly found Kevin Monahan guilty in the murder of Kalen Gillis. The Legislative Gazette's Aaron Shella levine has been following the case and filed this report.
6: After less than two hours of deliberation, the jury found the 66-year-old guilty of second-degree murder, reckless endangerment, and tampering with evidence. Jurors concluded that Monahan had acted with a depraved indifference to human life when he fired upon two SUVs and a motorcycle that had mistakenly entered the winding driveway of his rural Hebron home, rejecting the lesser charge of second-degree homicide. Monahan's attorneys Art Frost and Kurt Mausert centered their defense around a claim that Monahan's twenty gauge shotgun could fire even if the trigger was not pulled. Monaghan testified that he had fired one warning shot and that the second shot went off after he tripped on nails protruding from his deck, hitting his gun on the railing. Speaking to reporters after jurors came back, First Assistant District Attorney Chris Morris reflected on Monaghan's testimony when Monaghan said he hoped to start some sort of dialogue by firing the first time.
1: My hope with that, and if you were there for cross-examination, is that the absurdity of something like that, was just patently clear in the room that you could hear a pin drop if anybody had any thought of actually considering that to be true.
6: Morris's closing arguments lasted more than 2 hours. He showed jurors photos of shooting targets after Monahan and his wife Jinx testified that Monahan rarely fired his gun. The defense said Monahan could not have fired the second shot because of a decades-old wrist injury, but on cross-examination, Morris highlighted that Monahan currently works in construction and participated in long high-speed motorcycle races as recently as 2018 moments before returning their verdict the jury asked judge adam michelini for clarification on the difference between manslaughter and homicide and had testimony reread to them in which jinx monahan said her husband only fired his gun once or twice a year to kill groundhogs Gillis's friends, who were in the caravan when she was struck in the neck, bleeding to death moments later, took the stand to recount the traumatic events of the evening. During a post-verdict press conference, District attorney Tony Jordan thanked the young men and women who testified, saying he hopes the outcome of the trial assuaged any guilt they carry. These kids, y'all know, I mean, they, they feel responsible, and because our neighbors in Washington County were willing to get involved, those kids know or have, they'll have a basis to know that there's nothing that they did that was wrong. Because you know, adults tend not to believe kids. And so it was really nice for them to have people that could say to them, you were right, you did nothing wrong, you were just lost. Much of the defense's case also revolved around a lack of communication between Monahan and the young adults, as well as law enforcement told that police officers were at his home hours after shooting at the caravan for a noise complaint. Prosecutors said Monahan lied and said that he had been asleep since 830 and that hunters in the woods behind his home could have caused the disturbance. During closing arguments, Frost reiterated the defense's stance that the death was unintentional, echoing his opening statement. I told you in the beginning that when we got here, I would ask you to say two words.
3: Not guilty.
5: Because this was a terrible accident. And you, the jury, have realized that by now.
6: In his own closing argument, Morris said Monahan had lied to the police, suggesting hunters as the source of the noise complaint because he knew they were there over shots fired. Monahan, Morris said, did not act out of fear.
3: He acted out of a baser emotion than that. He acted out of anger. That's the only
6: thing that can be inferred from shooting at people within 90 seconds of being in your property. These vehicles were in his driveway, They were at his house interrupting his night and they were not leaving fast enough. He grabbed his shotgun and intended to make them leave as fast as possible. And he didn't care if they were hurt or killed just so long as they left. Jordan also hoped the guilty verdict would help heal those hurt by Monahan's actions. And our hope is today um, that they can begin to find that
2: little bit of faith and justice that they can begin to to move forward to heal because this is not the end for them and and they have a a long road ahead of them and, and we're hopeful
6: that this is part of it Gillis' death made national headlines amid a string of similar cases. Just days prior to Gillis' death, 16-year-old Ralph Yarrell was shot dead in Missouri after looking for his brothers at the wrong house. Sentencing will be March 1st, with Monaghan facing 25 years to life. Monaghan plans on appealing. The defense filed multiple unsuccessful motions for mistrial throughout the case. Monahan's attorneys did not immediately respond to requests for comment. Reporting on the campus of Skidmore College, this is Aaron Shalolevine. Levine.
0: listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino. The American Lung Association's 2024 State of Tobacco Control Report is out, and New York gets a failing grade for tobacco prevention and control program funding. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas with details.
3: The 22nd Annual Report evaluates state and federal policies on actions taken to eliminate tobacco use and recommends laws and policies. The mixed grades New York received saw no change from last year, with the exception of coverage and access to services to quit tobacco, which has risen from C to B. Trevor Summerfield is ALA's Director of Advocacy in New York and Vermont.
5: When it comes to New York, we have, you know, great smoke-free workplace laws. We get an A there. State tobacco taxes as a B. And it could be higher, but really would point out that, you know, New York did move forward with an increased um, cigarette tax and tobacco tax that we know, again, will prevent people from uh, picking up and hopefully lead them. To quit in the first place. Um, New York again has pretty good coverage uh, when it comes to access to services to quit tobacco. We've got the state quit line and access to uh, nicotine uh, replacement therapy services as well. I would say when it comes to the, the downside of things again to highlight that, um, it, it comes to funding and ending the sale of flavored tobacco products. Again, last year New York missed the mark with not passing any legislation That would have prohibited the sale of flavored tobacco products, including menthol cigarettes.
3: New York received a D for its efforts to end the sale of all flavored tobacco products and an F in funding for state tobacco prevention programs. Vermont got an A for smoke-free air and access to cessation services, a B for tobacco taxes, and an F for tobacco prevention funding and ending the sale of flavored tobacco products. Summerfield admits the Empire State missed the bar, said in 2023's report, that found New York was poised to lead the nation in policy efforts to prevent and reduce tobacco
5: use. Last year, when we had talked and this report came out, we were so optimistic. So at that point, uh, Governor Hochul did come out and propose uh, increases to funding, um, as did the Senate. And unfortunately, at the end of the year, they just Weren't approved. There was a, a slight uptick in funding, but nowhere near what the CDC recommends. And right now, currently as it stands, even with the funding increase from last year, they are still woefully underfunded and not even meeting 25% of what the CDC recommends states uh, should be uh, putting into their tobacco control programs.
3: Dr. David Hill practices full-time pulmonary and critical care medicine, and is chair-elect for the American Lung Association National Board. He says if you don't smoke, don't start.
5: The only thing we're supposed to put into our lungs is clean air. Tobacco smoking is the major risk factor for developing chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and for developing lung cancer. And it's also associated with coronary artery disease and higher risk of stroke, uh, along with multiple other cancers. So really, it's one of the most important things you can control in order to avoid uh, developing disease. Summerfield
3: says the report's message is clear.
5: When it comes to smoking and the actual number, when it comes to New Yorkers and their health care costs, it is staggering. It is in the billions of dollars, and we know that when it comes to tobacco use that it is costing um, our health care system, and New Yorkers personally on an individual level and their families, their friends, everybody that's concerned about them. It's too high, the the cost is too high. And it's it's a financial cost, but it's also a a livelihood issue and quality of life issue.
3: Connecticut received two F's for tobacco prevention and cessation funding and flavored tobacco products, two B's for smoke-free air and tobacco taxes, and a C in access to cessation services. Massachusetts gets two A's for (laughs) smoke-free air and flavored tobacco products, two B's in access to cessation services and tobacco taxes, and an F in tobacco prevention and cessation funding. There's a link to the ALA report at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas.
0: And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York Public News Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at WAMCPodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2404. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, president, uupinfo.org.